with you. Please uh, turn your in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 17. Now I realize that when uh, Rick Hedger was here, he spoke on two or three verses of 9 at the end of the chapter. But there's a lot more that's in chapter 9, and I think we need to look at it. And so we're going to read that today, if you would turn there with me, and then we'll pick up the rest of it next week. Verse 1. So he, that's Jesus, got into a boat and crossed over and came to his own city. Then beheld they been then behold they brought to him a paralytic that's a crippled person lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you." And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, "This man blasphemes." But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Arise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, Son, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house, and the multitude saw it and marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. Then as Jesus was passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax office and said to him, follow me. So he rose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard them say that, he said to them, Those who are well do not need a physician, or for you young people, a doctor, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins will break. The wine is spilled, the wineskins are broke, ruined, but they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. May the Lord add blessing to his word. As Jesus moves through his ministry, he encounters people with great faith. These people really believe that Jesus is who he says he is. So there are some people who do believe that he's able to heal, and they bring this paralytic man with his bed, on his bed, to Jesus. There's four guys in another passage. Now, we're going to turn to Luke 5, 16 through 26, and if you would, turn there with me. Luke 5, 15, 17 through 26. 
Now it happened on a certain day he was teaching there. There were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting around by who had come out from every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find a way how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down, let down his bed through the root tiling in the midst before Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said to them, Man, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began reasoning, Who is this who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or rise and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I rise. I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. The reason I set that is because I wanted you to see how they got to this, how they got to Jesus. I mean, these men really took some initiative. (laughs) They go, they're not to be stopped by all the people at the door. So they go up to the roof and they dig down into the roof. They tear the tiles off to get to Jesus. And they drop or lower the man right in front of Jesus. Now it says Jesus saw their faith. It doesn't say he saw the man's faith. He saw the faith of these four guys who had enough initiative and faith to believe that Jesus could heal this guy, that they were going to do anything. I mean, they just weren't going to be stopped. They're just going to dig down in that roof. And this kind of faith is what moved him to act. The fact that they believed he was capable of healing their friend showed him that they'd do anything to get their friend to Jesus, even destroying somebody's roof. To do it. Would, would, would you allow such a radical act of that? Let somebody dig down into your roof? I wonder. Jesus looks at this crippled man and says something very unexpected. Nobody expected him to say that. He says, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Hmm. I don't think that's what either of those four guys thought he was going to say, or probably the disciples either. We have to look at the importance of what's going on here. And I hope today that you get this in this room today. Because by and large, most of the prayer requests, most of the things we talk about, particularly when you reach my age that I reached last Friday, 39, plus... Okay. We have a tendency to say, how you doing? Well, you know, I got this bad knee, bad leg, bad back, bad something. Oh, yeah. Bad memory. I can't remember what's wrong with me. So, And we look at this and we don't really understand why Jesus said that to that man, son, Be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. Our primary problem that cripples us in our relationship with God is sin. Unforgiven sin blocks 
your relationship with God. The only way to have that relationship restored is through Jesus Christ. But then the issue of these hypocrites takes takes hold and they say, well, this man's blasphemes. Now, blasphemy is speaking evil of something holy or God or taking personal authority for something you don't hasn't been given to you, you by God. This is what they're accusing him of. They were actually thinking these things in their heart, but nothing gets by Jesus, right? So he knows their thoughts and says, why do you think evil in your hearts? Now, the contrast he presents to them now is amazing, and we have to consider what he's really saying here today. Which is easier? Realize now that we're talking about God in the flesh, the creator of the universe, standing there. He could just create from his own power. And restore the man's legs. But he asked them this question. Which is easier? And I ask people this a lot. And I say, what do you think was easier for Jesus? To forgive the man? Or to restore his his crippled legs? And a lot of people say, oh, to forgive. Definitely to forgive the man. That That was easier for him. But I want you to consider something. I don't agree with that. I think in order to forgive this man's sins, Jesus had to do something much harder than just speak. Didn't he? In the beginning, the triune God spoke the whole world into existence, and Jesus was there and was speaking those words. But to satisfy the justice of God in the courtroom of heaven, he had to die. In our place. His resurrection assures us of a complete payment. But that was not easy for Jesus, was it? Sounds easy. But here's the thing. Do you ever think that what he did on the cross was easy for him? Read this Psalm 22 sometimes, which outlines all of his statements from the cross. Or some of the things he says in the Gospels as he's, as he's hanging there. So to prove his authority to forgive sins, he said to this man, take up your bed and go home. And the people saw this and they marveled. They go, wow, what kind of power has God given to men? Well, to a man, Christ Jesus. So think about this. When you read these passages, don't just skip over them and say, oh, well, that's interesting. Focus on the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that when you see something like this, it makes you love Him more. Does it not? Makes you understand what it costs for you to just, you know, flippantly walk around this world as if you were God. It makes you understand more how much deeply He had to love you in order to bring you to Himself. How deeply did he have to do, love you? Deeper than you and I can comprehend. His grace is so amazing. We sing that sometimes. And you know, we sang the song, he will, choose, he will save whom he will save. You know, God is sovereign. He'll do what he wants. But he wants to save all men. That's what the scriptures say, right? If there's anyone in here today... While we're 
singing our last song, and you don't know you're saved, but you want to be. And you, you're standing there, sitting there, whatever that's happening to you, and the Holy Spirit is saying, you're lost. You're totally, completely undone. You see, that's the way the Spirit starts with us. He shows us who God is. He shows us who we are. He shows us how impossible it is for us to be saved, for to do anything. And sometimes we kind of shriek back and say, well, wait till I get a little better, Lord, and I'll, I'll clean my life up. And he says, no. Come just like you are. You're too dirty to fix yourself. You're too crippled. You can't do it. If you just come to me, I'll take care of everything. And then I'll be your father. You say, I don't deserve that. Of course not. Who does? Come to Jesus. If you want to come down here today and say, you know, John, I'm, I want to be saved. I think I'm saved. I'm not sure, but I, I really want to know for sure. Don't worry about the people setting up tables and putting up chairs. Come and talk to me or Mike or Jason or Rod. Anybody practically sitting on the front row here, down here can help you understand and know and have assurance in your heart. Your sins are gone. Now, positionally, they're already gone. (laughs) What Christ did is satisfactory for the whole world. Positionally, but you have to come and say to Him, you have to come and trust Him. Otherwise, you'll never receive what He has to offer. Now, Jesus goes on, and He's traveling along. He goes from there and he passes a man named Matthew who wrote this book probably. And Matthew is a tax collector. And he collected taxes from the Jews to give to the Romans. But the problem is he's hated both they're hated both by the Jews and the Romans because both sides knew that these guys would collect more taxes than were called for and then scrape off the top and make themselves rich. They were the IRS of the day. <laughs> Nobody likes them either. <clears throat> now Matthew is actually doing his job, sitting at the tax table, and Jesus walks up to him and says, follow me. Can you imagine an IRS agent sitting at, at a table and have Jesus walk into his office and say, follow me? And he drops everything. And follows Jesus. This is a kind of magnetic power Jesus had over the human heart. Now, he gets excited about this. And in Luke 5, 29 through 32, he throws a party. Now, you've got to understand, Matthew is called Levi in the other Gospels. You know, uh, that's just what happens. You have... A first name, and most of you also have a middle name, right? Or you have a given name, or you have a last name. And some people were called by either their first or last name. So don't get confused and say, oh, the Bible's disputing itself. No, it's not. Matthew, Levi. Probably Matthew of the tribe of Levi. So here's what he says. It says, 
he's going to throw a party for Jesus. He wants all of his friends to know Jesus. That's what happens when a person really realizes what they're saved from and that they're saved. Did you get it? It's when you realize what you've been saved from and that you're saved that you just want to throw a party and invite all your unsaved friends. You see, who did he invite? Well, who do you think he knew? He knew other tax collectors (laughs) and many sinners. So in verse 29 of Luke 5, and it's in your notes there if you want to look or you can turn there. It says, Levi gave a great feast for them in his house, and there's a number of tax collectors and others who sat with him. And the scribes and the Pharisees complained against the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Matthew 9.10, he says it the same way. And many of these tax collectors that sat down with him and his disciples. Matthew wants his friends to know who Jesus is. Would you invite people to dinner at your house for only one express purpose of introducing them to Jesus? I mean, we get together for, for dinner with a lot of people. A lot of people here in the church I've had dinner with, gotten to know you. You've gotten to know me. But would you invite someone to your house just for the express purpose, for dinner, of knowing Jesus, of being introduced to Jesus? And my next question is, who would you invite? Now, you can run through a litany of names. That you know people who really need Jesus. And you think in your mind, someday i got to go talk to them about Jesus. Someday i got to do that. Someday i got to do that. Like Pharaoh says, take the frogs away tomorrow. And tomorrow never comes. That's sad, isn't it? Of course, the Pharisees were offended by this. And they said, why does he seat with tax collectors and sinners? Because the religious hypocrites of that day thought of themselves as better than these people. You don't think of yourself that way, do you? If you walk out here lost today, if you walk out here without Jesus today, it means you're walking out of here satisfied with your own righteousness. I don't need Jesus. Boy, that's a big mistake. Especially when you meet him. These guys thought they were better than these people, but Jesus referred to the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs. What's in a tomb? Dead man's bones. There's deadness underneath. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you're just walking around dead. Do you understand that? It's difficult to understand. Jesus said there in Matthew 9, 12, and 13, listen to what he says. Jesus heard it and said, those who are well do not need a doctor, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. This is a quote from the Old Testament. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is referring here to people who are sinners, meaning that all of us are sick with sin. And he has the remedy. 
I don't know how many, you know, people who run to the doctor for literally just a snotty nose sometimes. Well, I got to go to the doctor. I got to go to the doctor. If you broke your arm, if you broke your arm, you say, I can't go to the doctor because I don't want him to rebuke me and say, you broke your arm. So I'm not going to go, even though it hurts, even though I, it's probably going to rot and fall off, I'm not going to the doctor. I don't want to hear him say how bad it is. I don't want to hear him say how bad it is. It's like the guy that went to the was told over the phone by the doctor that he had a terminal illness. And so he and his wife went to the doctor, and he said, I just can't go in and hear this, so you go in and find out. And the doctor said, yes, your husband's going to die unless... You go home and just treat him with all the love and nurturing and love him and love him and love him and and make love and do all these things you can to him to make him, you know, and he's got a good chance of surviving. So the man, when the lady walked out, the man asked, what did the doctor said say? He said, you're going to die. <laughs> now, the thing is, that's not what Jesus is going to say to you. He's going to say, rise. It's over. It's paid. It's yours. Take it. It's a free gift. Amen? A heart before God that looks at what Jesus does and calls it evil is doomed. We'll see that when we get over to chapter 12. But when you come and accept Jesus' blood as your only possible way of getting to God, He changes your heart and gives you His Spirit. Okay, so Jesus moves on and some of John the Baptist's disciples come along and they say, hey, we want to talk to you, Jesus, about something. So they go up to Him and they say, now, why do we... And the Pharisees fast. And your disciples don't fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now think about that. Jesus came to bring the kingdom And he wanted everybody in that kingdom. And he's the kingly bridegroom in that kingdom. And the church is his bride. So while these guys were physically with Jesus, they didn't need to fast. He's right there in front of them. But he was going to the cross, and they wouldn't see him for a while. And then, I'll guarantee you, they grieved and fasted and everything else. Fasting in the New Testament is kind of the same as the Old Testament. The difference is this. Fasting in the Old Testament not only becomes ceremonial, but also legalistic. And rather than bringing you to a real humble approach to God, it could sometimes make you feel like you're self-improved in some ways. And so I want you to think about one of three things. We should fast. Now, if you're a diabetic, you can't not miss a meal. I understand that. There's, and and this, as a very godly lady said to me one time, you can fast in other ways. <laughs> you can keep yourself away from something else. 
But affliction of the body and fasting was done not for ceremony, number one, not for self-improvement, number two, but for sensitivity to God. That was the whole purpose of it. And God, well, turn your Bibles to Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 14. Isaiah 58, 1 through 14. Cry aloud and spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. They, yet they seek me daily. They delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me for the ordinance of justice. They take delight in approaching God. And they say, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? God says, in fact, the day of your fast, you still find pleasure and exploit your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? To bow down his head like a bulrush? To spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast, an acceptable day of the Lord? Is not this the fast I have chosen, saith the Lord? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, that you break every yoke. It is not to share your bread with the hungry. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? That you bring into your house poor people who are cast out, when you see naked, that you cover them, and not hide yourself from his flesh? Then your light shall break forth like morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily. Your righteousness shall go forth before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. And you shall call on the Lord and he will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. Do you see the purpose of the fast there? To loose the bonds of wickedness. In who? Well, you first. But I always pray when I prepare a message. Me first, God. But then sometimes we say, oh, I have a friend who's not saved. Let's put him on the prayer list. What happens if you fast and pray for that person? What happens if you refuse yourself something so that that person will be saved? To undo heavy burdens. Listen, people in this world, this is a wicked and perverse world. Carrying around heavy burdens. People in this room are carrying around heavy burdens. To let the oppressed go free. Satan oppresses everyone that he can. And I'll show you something in a minute about fasting in terms of where Satan is concerned. To break every yoke. To share your bread with the hungry. While you're fasting and you're not eating, give it away. (laughs) That's what he's saying. If you're not eating it, give somebody else. To bring the poor into your house. You know, most of the times, the poor don't smell good. Do they? I've been poor. I did take a bath. But sometimes the poor, the street people, they don't smell good. They don't have manners. They don't act right. This is who he's saying bring into your house. 
You know anybody like that? To cover the naked. People who are without shelter from the cold. Our houses are not just for us to keep warm in. Are they? Then he says, your light will break forth. If you haven't any problem understanding the word of God, do this. Your healing will spring forth. You're sick. You feel bad. You're self-obsessed. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. And when you call on the Lord, he's going to hear you. What did I say before? Is it for ceremony, self-worth, or self-improvement, or for getting a sensitivity of God, which now Jesus fasted forty days before being tempted by the devil, devil, and he knew that demons know how to trip people up. He fasted forty days, realizing that he was going to go be facing face to face the devil himself and be tested. He didn't fast 20 days. He didn't fast a couple of days. He didn't pray a couple of hours. Forty days. The Bible says he was almost dead at the time. And now here he is up on the mountain. There's a guy that comes to the disciples, and he's got a para, uh, epileptic boy, and he keeps falling into the fire and the water, and he, nobody. And so the, the 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 disciples down there decide, well, we're going to cast the demon out of this boy because Jesus had previously told them that, that they were going to do that. And they couldn't. And they didn't understand. So Jesus shows up and says, why? And they said, why couldn't we cast it out? Now listen to what he says. Matthew 17, 19, 20, and 21. Because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here and there and go to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible. However... This kind, this kind of demon, does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Do you understand what I'm saying here? You understand what God is saying here? Don't be flippant in your Christian life. We're free under grace, and God is ready to minister through us anytime we make ourselves available. But sometimes we really need to pray up and fast up before we try to go into service because the devil knows what you're going to do. You're going to try to win people for Christ, and he's going to oppose you every way he can. Oh, well, he doesn't exist. We don't need to worry about him, right? That's his biggest tool right there. Okay, so what are you going to do? Now, don't, you know, there's another place where Jesus said, when you fast, don't, you know, go around like like this because, hey, I'm fasting. So let me tell everybody here, I'm fasting so you'll know this is why I look like this. <laughs> he says, wash your face, stand upright, fast privately, the Lord will reward openly. Same thing in prayer. I want you, to look, want you to look at something here in, in Acts chapter 13. The disciples are there and in Antioch, the church at Antioch. And God's getting ready to do something great. 
He's getting ready to send out some missionaries. Whoopee! Now, let me just tell you this. When Barnabas saw these disciples at Antioch, he realized they needed teaching. So he went and got Saul of Tarsus, or the Apostle Paul, and brought him over. And the two of them, for a couple of years, just taught and taught and taught and taught those people. And so there were five men there, counting those two, who God had raised up to be elders. Listen. Now, the church at Antioch are certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who called Niger, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. They ministered to the Lord and fasted. The Holy Spirit said, Now, separate me, Barnabas and Saul, to the work which I have called them. So they, having fasted, they prayed and laid hands on them and sent them out. Do you know what that's like? Gathering our church together. And we say, we got to send out missionaries. And we get together and we fasted and we prayed. And the Lord, we're waiting for a word. And he says, send out John and Rod. Well, wait a minute. we got to pull together a, a pastor search committee. Hogwash. If they're really taught, if you're really taught, look at the number of people. You know you've heard them preach here who can step in this place right here if I die today or tomorrow or in a few minutes. People are here, can step up. Paul didn't go out and say, well, now you need a pastor search committee. No, he raised them right up inside. And when they walked away, those other three guys carried on. I just think it's really interesting that that happened because we see fasting as a place in the New Testament as well, has a place as well as the Old so in order for them to understand Old Testament fasting versus New Testament fasting, he uses a couple of illustrations. So let's look at those illustrations for a minute. Now, I want to tell you something. When I was a boy, if I tore a hole in my jeans, we were fairly poor. My mom didn't have the money to just go out and buy another pair of jeans because her idiot son went and tore a hole in them. So she'd find an old pair of jeans that nobody was wearing anymore, cut a patch out of it, and sew it on that hole. But both of those doc, or both of those items had been washed before. She never went and got a new pair of jeans and cut a patch out of it and put it on the old ones. Because the minute she throws them in the washing machine and pulls them out, that patch is just going to pull away. So Jesus is saying that to them. He says, he says, uh, you can't, take a new piece of cloth and put it on an old garment because they'll both be ruined when they shrink. So you have to put an old piece, old patch on an old garment. But what he's really saying is this. You can't mix law and grace. Get it? You try to do it and it'll be destroyed. Then he uses the illustration of wine. He says, don't put new wine into old wineskins because you'll lose them both. What happens here? Well, you would put new wine or grape juice or whatever you want to call it into a goat skin that's been prepared for holding wine. I mean, you used to hold it like this and drink it. And there's a fermentation process that happens right away because it didn't have refrigerators. <laughs> and it didn't take long for grape juice to become wine. And so they would 
put it in their goatskin, hang it outside the, on their porch or whatever. By that afternoon or the next morning, it was wine, alcoholic wine. And Jesus said, you can't take now, use that same goatskin after you're finished drinking it, and then start that process again with the same old goatskin. Because what will happen is the fermentation process of the wine also affects the goatskin and causes it to get cracked and tear. You put new wine in there and start that fermentation process over again, it's just going to bust open. And what do you do? You lose it all. That's what he's talking about. But I want you to understand something. And this is probably not in my notes, and I don't care if it is or not. When you became a Christian, you became a Christian by grace alone. You didn't come to God and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep this law or that law, and then you'll accept me. No. And after you get saved, you can't do that either. You can't come to God and say, I'll keep this law or that law, and you'll accept me. God accepts you just the way you are before and after salvation. The blood of Christ takes the guilt away so completely. God is so satisfied with the death of Jesus that no one can bring an accusation against you, not even you. Well, you ought to rejoice in that, folks, because if you were trying to mix law and grace, then you'd always feel condemned. How many of you here, don't hold your hand up, how many of you here feel condemned a lot of your, time, a lot of your life? You read the Word of God and it just makes you feel worse. That's not the way it's supposed to be. When you open the Word of God, especially the epistles that talk to us about our inheritance in Christ that we didn't deserve, we didn't do anything to get except believe, and all of a sudden we start getting happy. Think about the fact that no one, God is never going to point a finger at you and say, there's that one sin back there on the 21st, of January that mm, you forgot to confess that one. That's ridiculous. I learned from Caleb Brown what First John one nine really means. I'm not trying to give you glory. Don't get a big head. First John one nine is a message not for an existing Christian to come because you are forgiven, period. That is where you come and say to God, two arguments, I have not sinned or I have no sin. And that's in verse 8 and 10. And the solution's right in the middle. Nine, if we confess our sins as sinners, He is gracious and forgiving and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And folks, when you come to Christ, no matter how many times you sin after you're saved, you are still completely clean in God's eyes. You believe that? Do you really? Well, it seems like it ought to change the way you walk, or the way you treat people. It seems like that when you start inviting somebody for supper or for dinner or whatever, it won't be just, let's have the pastor over. I love that. Please, I'm not turning anything down, okay? Go find somebody that doesn't know Jesus. It's just want to tell you this. The new creature that you are in Christ has no relationship with the law. None whatsoever. The law is there 
as a guide. It is not there as a rule of righteousness. I like what the scriptures Caleb read this morning. If I recreate as a sinner what I once destroyed, and he's not talking about somebody who falls into sin. It's talking about going back under the law because the law of God will just make you sin more. That's nothing wrong with the law. It's you. You're the problem. (laughs) But the law is too high for you to keep. You need to come and throw yourself on Jesus and say, Lord, I can't do this. And that's what Caleb said. If it's not done by the Spirit in you, then it's worthless. Fits, I didn't know you were going to do that, but it fits well here. Amen? We operate by faith in the righteousness of God that's been given to us. The law only makes us stumble more. Now, I just want to close by this. Saying this, if you're not know this, don't know this by now, and listening to this sermon, salvation is by grace alone. Amen? Salvation, let's say that together. Salvation is by grace alone. When you go out to talk to the sinner and they say, I've done this, I've done that, I've done this. Say it again. Salvation is by grace alone. Now, they won't understand what grace is, so that's when you get to talk to them about Jesus. Because in Titus it says the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for our Savior who will come and deliver us from this wicked body and put on new life. So that's a chance to talk about Jesus. The real point of it is there's no ceremonial fasting. There's no ceremonial activity. You can't go to God and say, I prayed an hour today. Does that get any brownie points with you, God? <laughs> Does it? No. Your baptism can't save you. The Lord's Supper can't save you. they are just simply outward demonstrations and expressions of what's going on inside. It's already happened to you. If you're here today and depending on your own goodness or your own efforts, maybe your baptism or some other ceremonial thing you've done, you need to come to the place of seeing that you cannot get approval from God that way. He acknowledges nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's all he acknowledges. And there's going to be so many people, as we read today, that will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this, this and that, this and that, this and that, even cast out demons in your name. But they didn't come through the blood of Jesus and they're going to be told, depart from me. I never knew you. He makes a universal call to all men to believe in Jesus completely Resting yourself on his merit and his work alone. If you haven't done this, do it today. Come to Jesus today. Come and escape from this crooked and perverse generation.